I remember all the years that I spent uh, as a child in church on Sunday nights. Maybe some of you were brought up that way too. There was a a time where I remember sitting in the back row. There was a, a set of windows across the back of the church sanctuary there, and they were open. And there were screens and stuff, and you could get away with that in Indiana. It was a little cooler at night. We'd sit there, and how I would daydream. Just sit out there and, you know, look outside and, and see everything. And I don't remember what the pastor said, but now that I'm older, I'm glad I don't. Because he was he didn't teach scripture the way it should be. But uh, I just remember all those Sunday evenings sitting there on a summer night thinking, how much I'd rather be outside playing right now or out someplace else. Uh, I was very thankful my mom and dad took me to church. I, I love the fact that now I look back and I say, what a great thing in my memory that they took me. And they took me every week and two times, three times, four times a week. Whatever was going on, I was there. But uh, I just remember a Sunday night like that. And so here we are, the the windows back there. I could see out. You can't. That's why we have you face this way. So you don't look out the windows and daydream uh, while I'm speaking. But uh, after we we continue our study in Second Peter chapter two, that's where we are. We are we are working through the same kind of thing that we're doing on Sunday morning, as you probably have noticed. Um, I did that on purpose to tell the truth, and that's not to to drown you in this information. But to show you more than anything else that Scripture is consistent. And what one author would write, another author would write, and it's because the Holy Spirit was, was teaching these people how important it was in the era that they wrote. Now, I don't know if we can easily transport ourselves to the setting of these books. All right? We don't know what it's like to live under Nero. All right? That's when they lived. Jude and Peter and these others, they're ministering under a absolutely terrible, terrible emperor who would have no qualms at all about killing people, especially Christians. Uh, they're writing to, like Peter here, is writing to a church that's been scattered. And that's because of, of their faith that they were spread out. They weren't in their own homes. They weren't at their own jobs. They weren't anywhere around some of them, even around their families. They were spread all over Asia Minor when Peter starts to write to them because of their faith in Christ. And they they were strangers in this world. And that's how he addressed them. And so add to that, I mean, I can't even fathom all that. All right, that'd be a tough world to live in. But add to that the dangers they keep warning them about. Which was more dangerous, a Nero of being scattered from your home and living in a strange part, or a false teacher getting inside the church. The majority of the book is on false teachers, not on how do you get along with Nero, or anything of that nature. And so this is, as we're reading through it, it's like, wow, that was so serious in that day, how much more so in ours. We've had almost 2,000 years to figure this out. And still, the need is just as intense today as it's ever been. And that's why, I, as a pastor, my pastor's heart just keeps saying, we've got to know this. We've got to know what's going on, and we've got to be prepared. 
because I don't want to be caught off guard, and neither do you, if uh, we should encounter such things. I've seen some things over the years, uh, things that have been very distressing with false teaching, things I'm seeing today that are very distressing. Um, but it still comes down to the fact, like I said this morning, we need to know Christ. We need to know Him very well. And like that song we sang, the second one, like the the river glorious is God's perfect peace. And if you follow those words, they're very poetical and they're very pretty and all that. But the concept is in those words, it's to be growing greater every single day. It's supposed to be greater than it was before. And I think of that as far as knowledge is concerned too. Because the more you know him, the more the peace you you understand as well. Because you know him and you trust him. And so I could see what Peter is saying in these words when he's telling them these things. He's appealing to them to be be diligent. Be diligent. You see actually in chapter 3 verse 14. After writing all these things in chapter 3.14, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace and spotless and blameless. And if he should come tonight, is that where he would find us? I hope so. I hope so. It's kind of hard in an ungodly world, isn't it? So, chapter 2, we back up to where we were. Uh, chapter number two, we had just talked about Balaam and his donkey last time together, uh, all the way up to verse number 16. Tonight, I'm going to try to do 17 uh, through 19, about three verses here. And more than anything, I'm going to be working with some concepts and some terms here. Uh, and I hope that I can help explain some of this, because he uses some pictures, like Jude does as well, and he goes into some description passages. And if you put it all down into a single, single phrase, it's like this. He says, these people are so false. <laughs> I don't know how else to say it. We call them false teachers. And we say, okay, they're false teachers. But he's going to say, they are so false. <laughs> Do you realize the word false is a big part of that? It's, it's because of their deceptive nature. And you know what they're doing. You're doing. They're doing what Peter says. In verse number 1 of chapter 2, he says that they destroy. They're destructive. They bring and introduce destructive heresies. That's tearing down. Do you know the nature of the church is to be instructive? It's to be constructive. It's to build, it's to build, it's to build. That's what it's all about. We're to be built up like a building. Even some of the uh, New Testament writers who use that. Paul would use that. We're being built. And Peter would actually use that. We're being built. The false teacher comes to tear and destroy and to destroy and to destroy. It's destructive in nature. He says that's one of our problems. The other is the fact that they deceive in verse number 2. Many, I told you this this morning, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of the truth will be maligned. They're deceptive, and they're good at it. So, we're going to talk a little bit more about them, and, and I, I hope I'm not overwhelming you with these words, but I think they're so important to look at. In, in verse 17 through 19, there's a deception that is highlighted here. 
It's the false teacher's deception. The picture starts this way. These are springs without water and mist driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. We saw that earlier this morning, that phrase, for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom, while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved." They're going to handle that much. Uh, It's a lot. Springs without water. How disappointing that must have been to the traveler. They spent a whole day out there. Many times we use this uh, kind of a picture in an old western, where they've been on their horse all day long out in the heat and all that, and they know that little watering place is out there. And there was one particular show, I, I know it was a John Wayne show, where they were, they were heading there and it was just a matter of survival. We get to there, we're going to make it, we're going to be fine, we get there. But when they got there, somebody had broken the basin of the water hole and all the water was gone. And the disappointment on their face, they knew they were doomed. There was no water. And I think of that, especially on a hot day like today. And I think, boy, I like water, don't you? It's good to have it. Here's what the picture is. A spring without water. They've come to a place to get their thirst thirst quenched. A place where it's to refresh them and revitalize them. And how discouraging, on one hand, to find there's no water. On the other hand, how dangerous that is too. When you need water, you've got to have it. I was never a big fan of lemonade when I was young. I, I just I just didn't, you know, think much about lemonade. I, I'd rather have iced tea or something else, but I w- lemonade wasn't my thing. We went on a, a hike, and some of you would know, in north uh, west Indiana, they have what they call the Indiana Dunes. It's just off Lake Michigan, and there's a lot of dunes there. Well, there's there's trails out in the dunes, and, and we, as we were younger, always said, well, we're going on the biggest one. We're going to prove ourselves to be stout and all that. So we'd take the 12-mile trail all right, up and down dunes and stuff. That's a lot of sand. That's a lot of walking. And when you go six, six miles out, it comes out on the beach. And then you got to walk six miles back along the beach in order to get back to the, the vehicles. And I remember just getting halfway there and thinking, wow, am I thirsty. It was hot and it was sandy and we did not take water with us. Which wasn't a good idea. But I do know walking along Lake Michigan thinking, that's a lot of water. But you can't drink it. You don't drink that water. And that made it even harder as we walked all the way back. What they had was only... A giant thermos of lemonade. I didn't care. (laughs) I just drank and drank and drank. I remember that to this day. How thirsty I was just for something to drink. Even though it was all there. There was nothing we could do about that. It was was a difficult thing to, to... It was discouraging. But we weren't in any danger. Not like these people would be in this picture. And Remember when Jesus showed up at... um, uh, the 
the well at Samaria? He sat down and he asked for a drink of water. That was not uncommon for somebody to stop there first. When they came into town, they needed a drink. It was hot and it was dry and they traveled quite a ways to get there. Could you imagine if he showed up and the well was dry? Well, of course, it was Jesus. What would he have done? (laughs) Probably a miracle, right? Behold, water. And maybe filled it up. But this was this was one of those deals when Peter is talking about this. And, you know, he worked on water. He was a fisherman. And I don't think they looked at the Sea of Galilee and said, Boy, let's have a drink. A spring without water. Promising everything with a spring, but giving nothing. That's a picture he uses for a false teacher. Think about that. Just let, let it go through your mind. They promise you everything you need for life and refreshment. They're, they're going to provide abundance because we talk of water. We talk about rivers of water. We talk about, you know, fountains of water. We talk about lots of water. And they say, oh, come here. Everything will be satisfied for you. Satisfied. Satisfied. You have plenty. And you get nothing. You, you're parched. And if that's where you spent your last dollar to get there, you're in trouble. That's one picture Peter uses here. Second one is rather interesting. It says, a mist driven by a storm. Now, the mist, or it may even be somewhat of the word fog, could be in there too. That doesn't provide a whole lot of water. It does a little bit. I mean, things get wet when it gets misty out there. But how likely is it to do us much good when it's being pushed by a hurricane? That's the word, by the way, for storm, is the word hurricane. How, how, how well does that water the crops around here? A storm of that nature. Oh, maybe about 140 mile per hour winds. That's pretty tough, isn't it? You're hoping that the crop's still there in the morning when you go out and look. That's a tough thing to have. Again, the mist might be beneficial in most cases. We would say, oh, what a gentle rain. What a nice soft rain. How beneficial that rain is. And it's usually cooler and there's clouds. And we say, oh, that's so refreshing. It's going to help the ground. It's going to help the crops. It's going to help everything. And it's being pushed by a hurricane. The picture of that is kind of interesting, too. Lots of noise, lots of action, nothing productive. Jude used a similar picture. Winds driven on, storms driven on in that nature. Uh, A lot going on there. And living in an agricultural community, we could appreciate that. There is no benefit here. There is no benefit in this picture. It's just harmful. It's destructive. It leaves behind an awful lot of grief and maybe even heartbreak. But that's what they offer. False teachers. They set up and say, Oh, we we are a mist for you. We'll refresh you. We'll be that fountain of water for you. You come to us. We'll give you all these things. And you can see they're giving a promise that they will never keep. That's really sad. 
You know, that's what I like about our Lord. He never breaks His promise. He makes a promise, He keeps it, doesn't He? That's what I love about His Word. I read so many things, uh, simple things, complicated things, things that, you know, we put way down the road and think, well, someday I'll be in heaven with the Lord and such like that. Did He not promise that? Didn't He say, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare, I'll come again? Do we believe that? Would that be most disappointing if He never comes? If all these words were just hollow words, promising good things but never giving them? We don't have a Savior like that, do we? No, we don't. A false teacher. See what they do? A lot of noise, a lot of action, a lot of promises, but nothing beneficial. Nothing. What are they doing? Well, verse number 18 gives you the big picture. They've They're speaking out arrogant words of vanity. They entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They entice. That's the word we use for bait. To catch with bait, like a fisherman term. Again, Peter's just kind of sticking out on the page, isn't he? He's a fisherman. And the picture is, they use this bait. The bait is words. Words. They captivate people with words. Arrogant words. Now, when you think of the word arrogant, do you think positive thoughts? No. No, we don't, do we? Arrogant words. Swelling words. Boastful words. The idea is overgrown is too big. They're arrogant words. They're words of folly and vanity, and they're empty. They, they appear to be huge when they're really nothing at all. Arrogant words, he goes here uh, in verse 17. Uh, arrogant words of vanity. Arrogant words of vanity. Buying the largest watermelon does not mean it's the best. Right? Some people think, well, if it's big, it must be the best. We go into the store, and our eyes are enticed by big things. We say, oh, I need the bigger thing. I need that bigger thing. I need that bigger thing. And we think because it's bigger, it's better. You don't put that down next to the false teacher. He's going for bigger, but it's not better. It's empty. It's empty. Big words with no substance. Nothing inside of it. Just... Folly and vanity and empty. I call it fake fruit. You've never bitten into one of those wax things on your grandmother's counter, have you? You remember those? I, my mom had them. All those fake fruit up on there. and I, I hope you've never tried to eat one of those. Actually, one of my children did once. We were at my uh, uh, mother-in-law's house, and she was having trouble with her eyesight. I'll give her that much. But she served wax fruit to the kids and one of them started eating in on that and they realized this isn't right this doesn't taste right at all there's something wrong with this fruit and we said don't eat that it's not real (laughs) okay let's put that away but they didn't know it was fake and that's what our world is caught up into do you know if we're not mature in christ we're going to think that the fake fruit is real we're going to bite into it 
We're going to devour vanity. We're going to think that's normal. The, the picture here, because he adds the words, enticing by fleshly desires. Generally, we go down a really rough road with that and we think that. But fleshly desires are things that are attracted by our eyes, by our ears, by our taste even, our nose, our smell. They're appealing to our senses. But they don't appeal to the heart. They don't appeal to the soul. The modern trend, and it's been going on for quite a while now, is to appeal to the census. In church activity, it's to appeal to the census. Uh, the, the kind of music that was very popular about 15 or 20 years ago or so, when the modern church movement really was kicking into full speed, and they were trying to create uh, enticing places for unbelievers to come. And they were setting up their programs and their church uh, style and their church decorations and everything was to appeal to the unsaved. And the mentality was, if we get them in, then we could share Christ with them. But the reality is, they didn't. They just wanted them in. And they enticed them in using the census. The things they saw, the things they heard, and it was usually music for a younger generation, and they said, we've got to get that generation in. So they used loud music and those kind of things, and you guys all remember that. You've seen that. And that was, that was an appeal to the fleshly side of man. That's what it was. Is that ever going to produce spiritual fruit? Walk down Galatians 5 and you find out that's true. The flesh does not produce spiritual fruit. The Spirit produces spiritual fruit. Because the flesh does not produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or self-control. Only Spirit does that. If you use the techniques of the flesh, you will reap the fruit of the flesh. This is what they're offering to people. In these big words of empty words, they're going after mankind in their senses. You know what? It is effective if that's all you want to do is get people. Work on their senses. You could find that in all kinds of businesses. You can find that in the sporting world. If it's satisfying to your eyes, your team is winning, you got the biggest, strongest guy out there, whatever you want to call it, everyone likes it. They cheer for it. They stand up and, and applaud for it because their senses are being satisfied. And I don't know about you, but the senses are not, in my case, something I want to depend upon. I don't want to follow after my senses, do you? What pleases my eyes, what pleases my nose, what pleases my ears, just let that drive me. They set up a fragrance, if you will, to bring people in. But they're not working toward the soul. Here's what John Calvin said. It would not be easy for men's mind to be it would not be easy for men's mind to be captivated by such nonsense unless it was first stupefied by some cunning deceit. Where does it start? They tricked you. And then you bought it. That's a sad picture. 
But that, if you, if you boil down what false teaching is all about, this is one of their biggest tools, is to deceive by hitting man as a man and not talking to them about the Lord. They aim the wrong way. You know what's sad about all that? They're effective. They're effective. Do they get big crowds? Oh, yeah. The guy who promises that he could heal you if you go to his church? How many people go there? Twelve? Thirteen? Hundred? Yeah? Why? Because mankind's more interested in his physical now than his spiritual. And that's what the false teacher aims for. The physical. That's his words. That's his words. He's using sensuality and fleshly desires to use as a bait and arrogant words to use as a bait. Unfortunately, he's going after our brothers and sisters in Christ. That should concern us. So we got that picture, and that's not a happy picture, I know. But the second thing they do also is in regard to their behavior. Their words are bad, but their behavior is bad too. They follow after this sensuality, it says. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. Right, so let's go a little bit further. Fleshly desires, just to find that word a little bit deeper here. That's the word violent. It's the word lust, technically. It's talking about a violent passion. And that's one of the tools they use. They appeal to the desires of sinful human nature. The difference you could tell between what is false and what is true is what is false is overcome by sin. What is true is overcoming sin. There's a big difference between the two. Notice what they're doing with this. They're using it to enslave. That's not the victory we talk about, is it? Not at all. So contradictory. It's so easy, folks, for us tonight to read through this passage and say, this is not right. This is everything opposite. Why would anybody fall for it? Why would anybody in the Christian church fall for this? You know why. Because they take their eyes off the Lord and they're not growing. As Peter would say, and I'll bring it up again, I'll do it a thousand times, in chapter 3, verse 17 and 18, he says in 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, he's talking to Christians, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. The potential is there for a believer being carried away, no longer on guard. He's not paying attention. And what's his outcome? He falls from his own steadfastness. Not his salvation, but his steadfastness. He can't stand firm in the evil day anymore. He's carried about by it. He's carried about by it. And he's moved away from the base. Because he has fallen for their error. He's gone after it. And the contrast is verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. There is no verse between those two. There's no place you can stand in between those places and say, well, I'm going to rest here for a little while. 
The fact is, you're either growing or, the contrast, you're in danger of falling. See it? That's why I keep appealing to you. Keep growing. Keep growing. Because the contrast here is, is terrible. The difference between overcoming sin and being overcome by sin. The difference between standing or falling is right there before us. How many times when you've read through the Old Testament have you thought to these Israelites, what is wrong with you people? I've always thought I needed to, I was going to do this years ago, but I never did it. I was going to have a sound effect Bible. All right? All these kids' stories had sound effects that I would read to my kids. And, and you're reading along, and then suddenly, you know, there's a, a, a horse or something in the story, and you push the picture of the horse, and you hear a horse whinny. And you say, well, that's cool. Nobody ever created the sound effect Bible. That would be something really fun, like battle scenes. You push it, and you hear swords clashing and stuff like that. And I thought, well, that would be a lot of fun. Pharisee steps in, you push a button, and it goes, boo. I thought that'd be a lot of fun. But here, what's the the sound effect for somebody who keeps making the same mistake over and over and over again? I always thought, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with you people? Can you hear it? That's my reading of the Old Testament. When I'm going through it, I'm thinking that constantly. What's wrong with you people? They had God in front of them as they're walking through the wilderness. A pillar by day of cloud. A pillar by fire at night. He fed them every day but Sunday or Saturday. Because he fed them twice on Friday. And they always had manna to eat. He gave them water out of a rock. He split open the Red Sea and let them walk right across it on dry ground. How many things do you need to convince you that the Lord's with you? And yet, what did they complain about all the time? The Lord sent us out here to destroy us. He's not here. Let's go back. What is wrong with you people? I need that button. I just read that over and over again, and I say, what is this? I don't want to say that about the church. But this is where the danger starts to creep up on us, where we, we're told, and we're told, and we're told, and we're told... And if we don't respond, we're going to fall. I don't want to be pushing that button, do you? What is wrong with those people? This is what Peter's trying to oppress them with. He says, look at what they're doing to you. They're giving you words and they're giving you a behavior. They, they're building an appetite in you for that which is never promising, never fulfilling, never satisfying, Never anything but empty. Empty. And deceptive. And appealing to your flesh and giving you nothing. And then he says, these are the people who barely escape from ones who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. The words are pretty strong. I know it. But they promised freedom. That's their phrase. Freedom! We got freedom for you. Doesn't everyone like freedom? Freedom from my school bill. 
is that enticing today or what? People say, oh yes, this younger generation, they say, oh yes, 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 we want freedom. We want freedom from responsibility. We want freedom from the expectations that we should work a full job and earn a full pay and do it the old way. We don't, we want changes. Our society is just full of this and you've seen it. It's frustrating to me. But worse than that is what these guys are offering. Promising them freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin? Judgment of sin. Responsibility for sin. It's not freedom from sin. Because guess what they're using to bait them with? It's the very thing that's going to overcome them in corruption. They want freedom. Matter of fact, let's go a little further. It's not just freedom from the the judgment of sin. It's not just freedom from the uh, responsibility related to sin, but it's freedom to sin. I hate to say this, but it is in the churches today. That's what I've been ranting on for about two months now. I keep bringing it up. It is in churches today. It's in Bible churches today. It's circulating among even IFCA churches, which bothers me a great deal. That's where my heart sits. And I think, these are my friends. And they're, they're buying this stuff. I said, what is wrong with you? Why, why do you think this way? They want this. They want the words that we speak. They want the grace. They want the freedom. They want the peace. They want all these things. But they don't want the responsibility of living a holy life. Don't ask me to be spiritual. Just let me be saved. I don't understand it. Do you? I don't understand that. If Christ has set me free, am I not to be free indeed? And enjoy the life that He's given to me? To walk His way? To learn His Word? To grow in the Spirit? to be What are you missing when you just say, I just want the, the, the salvation, but take the rest, it's, it's just, it's works, they call it. So they shove it all aside, because we're not saved by works, so they shove it all aside. That's called sanctification, folks. And they don't want it. They just want the word grace. I hate to say it all, but that's exactly what's going on in our society today. In our schools, in our churches, in the pastors being trained for ministry today. If for whatever reason the Lord ever puts us in a place where it's time to, to uh, talk to a new pastor, I don't know if that will ever come, who knows? But if that day ever comes, ask them what they mean by sanctification. If they cannot answer that question, do not let them in your pulpit. Honestly, do not let them in their pulpit. They don't get that taught to them anymore. And that's scary. Because that's the Christian life. That's what we're doing every day as we walk through this life. And they just say, well, let's just save them. It doesn't matter about sin. Boy, does that open up a bad door. Freedom to sin. Freedom to sin. That's what it comes down to. They're saying, you're free to sin. That's okay, because you're saved. They're taking off the reins, they said. You know, it sounds so much to me like Psalm 2. Have you read Psalm 2 lately? What's the kings of the earth want more than anything else? 
let's throw off his fetters from us. That's a change, right? They don't want a king. Let's turn away from the Lord. We don't, we don't want the Lord. And so they appeal to, to the people around them. Let's get rid of the chains. That's what they call following the Lord. Chains. And they appeal to it. The Lord in heaven looks down at them and it says he laughs. He laughs. They have no idea what they're talking about. They think that they are running wild, they're free, they have no reins, they can do whatever they want. But what does Peter describe them as? They are slaves of corruption. Do you know that you will never be free? I hate to say it this way. But listen, if you go into Romans chapter 6, you see, you're not free. You go into Romans chapter 8, you're not free. Oh, you might be free from the wages of sin, and you're free from a lot of other aspects of sin, but you are slaves of Christ. You are slaves that belong to the Holy Spirit. Is there freedom in any one of those? No, not really. There is no place for a man to say, I'm totally free of everything. Even a believer is under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not free to say anything we want or do anything we want, are we? No. Holiness is not designed that way. That we could say, oh, I'm a Christian, but I could live however I want. You know better than that. But do you know how many people fall for that? They say, it's okay. Maybe you've heard of some of these wild, wild examples of teachers, pastors even. One was known as the cursing pastor. His sermon was full of vile words as he preached. Sounding good to you? Yeah. That'd be terrible. You know what my mom would have done? She would have taken a bar of soap out there. I know that because I've seen it before. (laughs) To my brother, not to me. (laughs) Tom is always that way. We always blame my brother Tom. A bar of soap. I remember years ago when one of our kids, when we were, they were young, said something they shouldn't have said. And my wife, Kay, grabbed them and took them into the bathroom. I said, oh, here comes the bar of soap thing. They'll never forget it. She couldn't find the bar of soap, but she found the pump. And she's like, pumping that soap right into their mouth. They never forgot that either. What do you do with this? What do you do with these kind of things? They offer these people the world, and they really have nothing to offer, do they? Nothing at all to offer. Instead of freedom from sin, they, they say, you can, you can sin. It's okay. It's understood. You could sin. And all the while, if you look closely, they have changed themselves. They are slaves. And it's kind of interesting for one slave to call to the other slave and say, Hey, you want to be free? And that's what they're doing. Peter says they're slaves of corruption. For what, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. That, that's just a, a sad picture. You know, I don't know about you, but I remember vividly, when I came to know the Lord, the first thing that struck my mind was my sinfulness. It was like, wow, 
Somebody was explaining that at a Bible camp. They were talking about the cross. I remember we were sitting on little half logs out there in the, by the side of a creek, and he had up a little flannel board thing. And he's talking about the death of Christ. And there was a flannel graph of Christ on a cross and the blood and the whole thing. And I'm looking at that and looking at that, and he's talking about sin. And finally it dawned on me, that was mine. That was my sin. And I'd never thought about that before. But that realization suddenly condemned me in the fullest measure. I said, I, it's my fault. It's my sin. And he paid it for me. And I understood the cross. Take that out of the picture and what do you have left to offer? Take that out of the picture. It's not about sin. Let's not talk about sin. Let's not preach about sin. Let's not take any, any you know, concern about sin. Let's not scare people. Let's not disturb people with sin. Let's just talk about salvation. Salvation from what? Theologically? Sin! The penalty of sin! That's crazy to take it out. But that's what they've done. You're free. You're free. And look at who they aim at in verse 18. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error? That sounds like a close call to me. We're to find that a little bit later. But it goes very close to what verse 14 described them as. Unstable souls. Are these people growing in Christ? You got the clue? Nope. They're not growing in Christ. They're unstable. They're set for a fall, aren't they? And here, some people, by God's mercy probably, that's all I could say in verse 19, or verse 18, they barely escape. Oh, it's so enticing. They are Eve just about to pick the, the apple. And somehow the Lord says, stop. Just stop. Don't go. And they don't pick it. He said, that was close. They barely escape. Should we be that close? Should we be that close to the apple that we see it and we smell it and we feel it? But that's where they were. They were barely getting out of that one. And then in verse number 19, it talks about those who were overcome. These guys didn't make it out. By what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. They didn't get out of the trap. They fell for it. They became slaves of corruption, just like their leaders. How many times did the Lord speak to the Pharisee in such harsh terms in Matthew 23? And said, you know, you're pretty much the son of the devil yourself. Right? And they, and he talked to him. I mean, it was like strikingly incredible. I, would you have liked to have been in the temple that day when Jesus was giving that speech? It's like, wow, things are sizzling all around the room. Because he was addressing the fact that they not only were wicked, but they were leading other people astray with their wickedness. And they had to have broken the Lord's heart to see that. And then at the end of the chapter, he's just standing over Jerusalem and says, How often I wanted to gather you like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. Guess who they were following? Not the Lord. False teachers. That's a sad picture. 
They're overcome. And they fall for it. So what is, what is our job? What is our job? Well, you obviously know. We're to grow, right? You know that. But there's also a responsibility in all this because they're using words and they're using uh, techniques and behavior to attract and to enslave your brothers and sisters in Christ. What should you do? Warn them. That's a good place to start. Let's go to Galatians, just for a minute. And you know this passage, but let's go to Galatians, right toward the end, verse chapter 6, verse 1. I'll give you a second to read it even, before I even say something. I think it says everything it needs to say. Galatians 6, verse 1. He's talking about your brother. Brethren, if even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, what? What do we do? Restore. Restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. You know, that's not an easy road. Restoration is hard. To do it with gentleness. And yet, all the while, each one looking to yourselves. Why? So that you're not tempted too. It's dangerous territory here. But the Lord doesn't say, okay, let's move out. Let's get away. Let's, let's, oh, they felt. Let them go. He doesn't say that in Scripture. We have a responsibility. Use our words right. Use our behavior right. But help your brother who's in danger of falling. Help your brother. Jude's going to say that too, and you're going to hear it a lot when we get there. Help them. They're in the fire. Pull them out. They're stained with sin. Pull them out. It's just, it's just what we're called to do. We're called to do. Should we just leave our brothers overcome by these things? You can hear Peter's words, can't you? It, it, it's just a, an appeal to us over and over. Galatians does it. So many other passages do it. Because these individuals have been caught up. Somebody has invested time in them to tempt them that far. You know that? Many times we don't give anybody time. The, the whole process of discipleship means time. Did you know that? That's part of the big part of it, is time. Time spent. Time spent helping them, helping them, helping them. Because as you start to develop and teach, then habits are formed. Habits are formed. And when habits are formed, that's what we become. And if it's sinful enticement or discipline, or, or whatever you want to call it, discipling, if it's sinful, and they're falling for it, they're going to get indoctrinated with it, and it's become a habit of their life. And then when it becomes a habit of their life, they are slaves. There's a positive way to look at that. Wouldn't you rather them be slaves to Christ? It takes time. And I, I'm afraid to say in our microwave world, we don't want to give time. We want it done quickly. Just so 
solved it. Let's move on. It's, it's our duty. For us to grow, yes. For us to have knowledge of Jesus Christ, yes. But that's not just for ourselves. That's for our brothers. That's for our sisters. We're here to help them, to help them grow in their knowledge of Christ. We're here to help them grow in the grace of Jesus Christ. That's our investment in one another. That's what we're called to do. So, you see these words, and they're not pleasing words in verse 17, 18, and 19. Now, one part of that is pretty. I know it. And I'm looking through it and saying, wow, I'm going to leave them on Sunday night with this, like, blah. They're going to go home and spend a whole week this way. And I said, oh, please don't look at it that way. Look at it as, yes, this is a danger, but what are we called to do? We're called to grow, and we're told to help. And those two things are before us, because we're going to go on to the rest of these verses in verse 20 through 22. And those aren't pretty either. They're not pretty either. It just reinforces the danger that a false teacher brings to a church. Let's not go down this road. Let's not go down this road. Let's be diligent to be careful about God's Word. To know it well, to speak it well, to live it well, so that we're not in this danger. I don't want to be there. You don't want to be there. We don't want the destructive destructive ways. We don't want the deceptive ways. So, that's my appeal to you tonight. On a Sunday night, you know, that was only one page of notes. I usually give you 14. I just said, ugh, there's so much here. We're going to just go with that. So, uh, next week, we'll finish up the rest of this chapter. And uh, we'll move on to chapter 3. And you say, finally. Wait till you see it. Okay. We have a word of prayer, and we're closed with this. Brian, would you close us in prayer tonight, please?